0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Colleen English, one of the co-hosts of this channel. Today, I'm very excited to be talking with Mary M. McGlynn, Professor of English at Baruch College, CUNY, and the CUNY Graduate Center, as well as co-chair of the Columbia University Seminar for Irish Studies. She writes about contemporary English, Scottish, and Irish fiction, and also about film, detective fiction, and country music. Her publications include a monograph entitled Narratives of Class in New Irish and Scottish Literature, published in 2008, as well as many articles in journals and edited collections. In this interview, we will be discussing her new book, Broken Ireland's Literary Forum in Post-Crash Irish Fiction, published by Syracuse University Press in 2022. This book examines the ways that post-crash era Irish novels respond to global economic crises and recession through formal departure from realism. Mary, welcome uh, to the New Books Network. Uh, Before we get started um, in terms of the details of your book, I was wondering if you could tell me a bit more about yourself as a scholar and teacher and how you came to this project. Um, Thank you, first
0: of all, so much for giving me the chance to talk about this. I'm really excited to do this. So as you mentioned, I teach in the CUNY system in New York City. And the City University of New York has, um, I believe, a quarter million students um, at any given moment. Uh, Baruch College is one of the flagships within the system. Most of our students are from New York City, um, Long Island, Westchester, New Jersey a bit. And we are regularly one of the most diverse campuses in the nation. The other thing that I think is really important in this context is over half of our students are first-generation college students, and the median family income of the entire undergraduate body is less than fifty thousand dollars per year. So we have a lot of students who are coming from positions of relative economic precarity and unfamiliarity with navigating the kind of economic systems uh, in contemporary. Um, United States culture in a lot of ways. So the other thing is the majority of Baruch students major in fields um, in the College of Business, meaning that their contact with the humanities is often just a couple composition courses, one great books course, and they're out, possibly an English minor. So given that my own work has focused for you know pretty much my entire career on class and economics, I found that my scholarship often works as a good bridge between the spaces the what they want or feel they're supposed to study, and the questions that the humanities encourage them to think about. So I've always wanted to talk about class dynamics, social hierarchy markers, things like that in the classroom. The other side of this is I come at it from a personal perspective. My husband grew up on a dairy farm in the northern part of County Cork. And um, even by the time that he left home, the farm was no longer being operated. The land was leased to somebody else. And he left home partly because the job prospects in his village were so unencouraging. Um, Both of his brothers entered into the construction and building trade. One of them lived in New York for a while and worked there. But during the economic crisis of 2008, one of them in particular got left holding the bag on a couple of construction projects and had to declare bankruptcy. Everybody above him was fine. The people beneath him didn't lose as much. And it was these kind of, you know, little guys um, in Ireland who got, I think, Hit hardest in some ways by the crisis and the subsequent austerity. So it really sat uncomfortably for me that this is where that was going. And it moved me from thinking about um, the ways that conventional framing of class do and don't work in the Irish context, which is something I've really been interested in for a long time, in some more direct engagement with economics and the politics of the crash and subsequent austerity. Great. Thanks so much.
1: Um, and it's wonderful to see the ways in which your teaching and your personal life intersect so well with with your research. Um, so I think this book makes a really critical intervention in Irish studies, and that you shift the conversation, yes, as you were just saying, to um economics, but also to literary form rather than focus it exclusively on the kind of content of novels um and use that as a way to explore contemporary Irish culture, politics and and economics. Um, How did you arrive at this decision to focus on form and kind of generally and then grammatical asymmetries in particular?
0: So I think there are a lot of really great scholars who work on levels of plot and theme and character, and they're doing great stuff. Um, And so while I am looking at economics more directly now than I had been previously, I still didn't want it to be a thematic engagement. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them is I Basically, I think I'm just a born formalist. Um, I came of age when new criticism and deconstruction were kind of battling it out. And the turf, you know, the space they were fighting over was about discourse. It was always about language. And that sat well with me. And it's the thing that makes literature different and special than other disciplines to talk about language itself. And so I got very excited by that. Um, real interest in linguistics and dialects that I've worked with throughout. The other kind of um, influence for me is cultural studies and its attention to common sense, how consent is sought and obtained, or as some people would say about neoliberalism, no longer sought. Um, And also the interest in more popular forms of literature, And this is important to me, partly in my belief that a lot of the ways that meaning is conveyed is less overt, and it's more a question of received forms and understood constructions and the ways that we are always working with linguistic and visual tools that have historical weight attached to them and therefore can naturalize certain ways of thinking these kind of well-received grooves of thought that we can enter into. So the places where stuff pokes out of those grooves where we're using unconventional phrasings or formulations, I've always been super drawn to that. Um, And I think it's really important now in particular because it feels like there's an even more intensely focused economic lens over the past, I would say, couple of decades that make us always think about um, economics. And I think Eugene O'Brien is the person who first framed it as um, economics is our current master discipline. And it feels to me like talking about how we end up kind of enclosed in that discourse. It's it's really useful to, to do that formally. Um, the other side of it, the third side of it, I guess, then is the modernist love of language. And I think, so my Irish studies origin story is actually in high school, falling in love with the opening pages of Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, and just being agog. It was, you know, the word moo cow explains everything since for me. I just, I loved so much those opening phrases. And I was listening at the same time to music, and I can cite the violent femmes in particular. I was really excited that people were allowed to curse in music. And it felt to me like what that music was doing was making it new in that modernist way and everything um, about Joyce felt exciting and fun and accessible. And so I I think I always want to talk about form and the earliest stuff in this book actually takes me back to, this is what, the fourth leg of it, the way that the United States and the other Americas and Ireland kind of cross- fertilize and constitute one another. And when Joe Cleary read an updated version of some of that work I had done, um, he was pulling together a special issue of boundary two about the economic crisis. And the work I did for him became part of what is now um, chapter two in the book. Um, And it was Colin McCann and Sebastian Barry McCann with all of these little itty bitty sentence fragments And Sebastian Barry with these sentences that literally could go on for more than a page, um, giant run-ons. And because I am not into prescriptive grammar and because I thought of myself in some ways as a modernist, um, none of this felt like errors. They felt very generative and made me ask the question of what isn't working in conventional grammar, in standard expression that would move somebody to write these alternate sentences? And it felt like a really specific moment in the evolution of the kind of larger cultural discourse and its influence from the internet. So I I think an early conference paper I presented on this stuff was called I Can Has Cheeseburger um, because there was a cat who never spoke grammatically. And this was the whole point of this cat. Um, And it felt to me like literature, it wasn't like it was copying the internet, but it was developing these kind of parallel responses to our cultural moments, and there was something about austerity giving rise to these widespread feelings of impotence and lack of agency um, alongside feelings of personal responsibility, I guess. So the internet, the other, there's so many moving parts here. Um, It's a long answer. Um, The way that the internet functions with this kind of eternal memory. and novelistic prose, I guess, is kind of entering into this cultural moments in which everything lasts forever. And also personal experience becomes kind of the primary lens for us. So there's this sense of instantaneity. Um, you can click, you can find out something immediately, right? And also a sense of um, sensation mattering more than logic, how you feel mattering more than what you think. Um, And there's all this stuff, instant gratification, um, the kind of you only live once, YOLO stuff, Um, and even things that are pushing back against that, like mindfulness or slow food, um, the idea of, you know, like the media Sabbath kind of thing. And it all feels like it's born from this same place of a commercial. um, Who is it? Jody Dean talking about communicative capitalism, and that this has become this inescapable kind of sphere that we're in and that the way that it's affected language you know particularly since pandemic obviously people read less but even before that um twitter character some um, limits or the summaries of the tldr um, even the way we communicate and text with each other now and then the kind of affective dimensions to all of that, the way that the internet seems to generate, um, outrage, right. Or even I wonder if Instagram being such a visual space rather than a linguistic one, um, a lot of the really cute animal videos or these plotless things. All of this seems to me to be kind of paralleling, um, a lot of the literary devices that I was seeing. And, um, I guess, yeah. So I'm I'm already kind of talking about irrealism, irrealism and ungrammaticality as as larger than just novelistic forces.
1: Yeah, I know that's fantastic. I mean I love that term you used eternal memory. I think that's that's a great way of, of thinking about the internet and the ways in which, you know these novels can't help but respond to this this present moment. Um, I know you already kind of covered irrealism and ungrammaticality, um, but if you want to say a little bit more about um, the way that your discussion of form is centered around these two terms and kind of how they shape your close readings, I'd welcome that as well.
0: So irrealism is a term that I entirely took from the Warwick Research Collective um, who were looking at a lot of what... Um, I think the subtitle of their book is something about combined and uneven developments. But they're looking at peripheral places um, or formerly, you know, what would have been considered peripheral responding to or engaging with metropole. Um, and they pointed out that very often these texts had irreal dimensions that we might have formerly associated with modernism, things like plot lines that aren't linear, um, meta-narration or unreliable narrators, contradictory points of view. Um, uncanny things, anti-realist genres, magical plots, and otherwise straightforward novels, little bits of ghosty, you know, or gothic dimensions. And so I kind of was thinking about that alongside, yeah, these run-on sentences, um, these sentence fragments, but also as I started to think about other ways that there was grammaticality, something else that McCann, for instance, very often does. And then as I kind of, you know, picked up my head and looked, saw everywhere was this increasing use across not just Irish fiction, but um, most contemporary fiction in English of the present tense. Um, And then other kind of grammatical asymmetries or illogicalities. And it really took me back into classical rhetoric um, in a few cases. So the use of one part of speech as another part of speech or the mixed metaphor um, kind of idea, and so I found myself um, referring frequently to old Latin lists of Latin rhetorical techniques um, in talking about ungrammaticality, which suggests, for one thing, this is nothing new, um, and perhaps not even strictly ungrammatical. You know, just outside of the the bounds of kind of cliche or you know less exciting expression.
1: Great. Hey, yeah. Thanks so much for that. And I suppose kind of building off of the the terms that you were using and then your more general attention to form, I was really interested to see and impressed by the wide range of, of texts that you included. Um, you know, you have novels set in the U.S., Irish novels set in the U.S., contemporary big house novels, developmental thrillers. Um, so aside from your time frame of Art Fiction published between 2007 and 2019, what other factors did you consider when selecting these texts?
0: That's a really good question, partly because I think with a study like this, there is an element of randomness to it. Um, the things that happen to connect with you, you know, as as you're reading them. Um, definitely once I started looking for um you know once i realized i was a hammer every text i picked up looked like the the ungrammatical or the irreal nail um there was you know there are other books i could have written about i'm actually working on something now about um deirdre madden's time present and time past for instance which i think is a text that could have worked very well in this book so the, the kind of organizing framework originally that occurred to me, I thought of the book almost as a series of dolls, where the largest sphere that encompassed this was a kind of um, global geopolitics in which what we're looking at is the relationship of Ireland to other national spaces. Um, and in particular, it felt to me with the ideological concerns that I had um and the kind of popular culture dimension of of the um internet speak and all of that that the us was a more interesting kind of interlocutor um or more apt at this moment in some ways than britain and obviously britain remains you know a huge cultural force against which um irish authors are writing and you know especially given how many are published in london first really important but then as i opened out or opened in to see the smaller and smaller frameworks, I kind of felt like, you know, the infrastructure. And so I found the pair of novels, Sebastian Barry, or I'm sorry, um, Kevin Barry and Mike McCormick were both talking about larger, you know, kind of city infrastructures um, and in that way. And then smaller than that, looking at real estate more specifically, and smaller than that, looking at objects and people within the spaces. And so, once i once i framed it in that way i was i was really just looking for a pair of kind of representative novels rather than saying that any any specific novel could or couldn't work within this framework i think that's that really when you're diagnosing a cultural moment most every text is probably speaking to it in some way
1: no yeah i think that's really a good point um and i i do i like that selection criteria that it's kind of more about again the um kind of formal choices that are being made as well as the the kind of ways that, that informs the economic choices as well. Um you also note um that this book is structured around kind of the quote various interruptions of neoliberal ideology in recent IRS fiction. Can you tell us a bit more about this idea of kind of interruption and how it helps to give structure to the project?
0: So I think um just really quick, one thing that just occurred to me um, that I do feel like I want to say about why I chose certain things, if it's all right to yeah, sure, go back for a moment. I was looking mostly at things that were written about the era of the boom or the era subsequent to it. So I wasn't looking as much at historical fiction, for instance. And so, you know, there were things that I thought could have been, you know, Emer McBride is obviously doing some incredibly formally important things she was talking about this earlier moment and it felt to me like then I would have been talking about these other contexts. It's not entirely true because Red Sky and Morning, um, the Paul Lynch novel I talk about is a historical novel um, but I I felt like, oh, but it's American history. And so the other thing that I really didn't engage with at all was kind of the the North of Ireland issues. So somebody like Anna Burns, who's so amazing, um again didn't didn't get included for that reason. And then finally Sally Rooney obviously was on the on the ascent um towards the end of this. And uh I decided that I was gonna save her for next time um because she really is generationally at a at a different perspective from the writers that I'm talking about. All right, so eruption, um which is I remember, you know when I would go and look over and over because it's a term I had borrowed from someplace I can't even remember. And I have an internet search that it says you accessed this many times in the past, which is literally how is eruption with an E different from eruption with an I. Um, And the answer that the internet told me every time I forgot was that eruption is a term that is more violent. Um, And it felt to me like that was more suitable eruption with an E feels kind of spontaneous and almost natural. And eruption, to me, called more attention to the the intrusion of it. Um, not a fortuitous surprise, but an unwelcome entry. Um, and it felt to me like that worked better with my framing of the kind of neoliberal moments that, at least I'm arguing, these books were kind of Mired in this this sense of a present from which people could not escape, and that's the way that we have been um, held in place. There's a word I'm looking for and not finding. Um, the impasse there. I was looking for Lauren Berlant in my head, and I found I found them. Um, so the impasse in which these texts find themselves, it felt to me, was very much a signature of this neoliberal moment. And that eruption um, is something that keeps happening, no matter what text you're trying to, or what, yeah, novel you're trying to write. Neoliberalism, the economics of austerity, that kind of economic precarity um, that was in the the air that everybody was breathing came into it no matter what you were writing about. So I was really most interested in texts that didn't seem to be trying to talk about the economy most directly. And instead we're trying to talk about other stuff and over and over and over again, that master discipline of economics forced its way in both thematically, but more importantly, I think formally. Great, thanks so much. I like that you addressed the Sally
1: Rooney question fully as well, because I'm sure that's something on many people's minds. And I think you're absolutely right in terms of the generational gap. Um, But I'm excited to hear that you're going to uh, kind of delve more into Sally Rooney, because I do think that a lot of the formal um, things that you're pointing out speak really well to her work as well. Um, And I suppose returning to the concept of interruption, the the kind of violence that you're speaking just speaking about um, about interruption also ties in with notions of brokenness obviously uh, broken Ireland's the book's title um, you take this up most directly I'd say in chapter one where you really discuss the plurality of the Irish nation um, so could you tell us a little bit more about the concept of brokenness and why it's so important to this project and how it speaks to the form and the context of these novels?
0: I like this question, uh, partly because even now in my folders where I saved everything about the book project, it's called Other Irelands, And that was where I started with it because it felt to me like the plurality of the nation was the important thing. The number of Irish immigrants outside of Ireland now outnumbers the residents in Ireland by like 5 to 1 or something you know like extraordinary I think it's even more than that they that may just be the US um and so I was very interested in you know the Latin American Irelands the American Ireland the New York Ireland the San Francisco Ireland and so I felt like there was this kind of other Irelands and also it was my You know, kind of moments of reverence um, in front of Elizabeth Butler Collingford, who I knew as an undergraduate. And I feel like Ireland's Others was such a hugely important book to me um, because it gave me permission to kind of talk about, you know, high culture and popular culture all in the same volume. And I just loved the way that she took all of the lenses she was using and flipped them around to look in kind of the opposite direction. And so, like I said, I'd imagine the book is kind of a tribute in title um, to her work and her influence. And then one of my colleagues, I think it was Adam Kelly, um, who I think is a a wonderful reader of this moment, said that he didn't feel that it was violent enough a title, um, quite honestly. And so I think that that eruption... That we're talking about. Um, and so I think he was the one who said, you know, maybe broken um instead. And that worked really well for me, partly because the very first image I had of it was that cracked looking glass of a servant's business from Ulysses and the fact that there are multiplicities in a broken space, that it got at the precarity better. Um, I found as I was writing, I was using lots of metaphors and language of, of raggedness and jaggedness and sharpness. And so broken seems to, to fit better with that. And also in the moment of austerity with this idea of, you know, in particular, the framing of somebody who's been made redundant, you know, or unemployed as a broken kind of person. And so again, kind of that that space where economics frames how we look at everything, and so yeah, I felt broken. This did all of that, and in the formal dimensions, particularly sentence fragments. You know, even the word fragments again sounds like something, you know, that has been has been broken, and the breaking of form, the eruption of the little ghosty moments in so many of these texts there were an awful lot of ways in which the novels themselves felt like they had broken with the long standing tradition so it just it felt like one of those titles that you know people could take in any direction they wanted
1: yeah definitely there's kind of a capaciousness in in <laughs> the idea of brokenness and i think you're right very aptly describes kind of the cultural and economic conditions of ireland as well um in chapter 2 and you've touched on this a little bit but um, you talk about Ireland's global positioning, right, being shaped by American neoliberalism. Could you tell us a bit more about how this kind of plays out in in novels like Paul Lynch's Red Sky Morning, in Morning, rather, that you already um, mentioned, and as well as Colin McCann's like, The Great World Spin.
0: So it's interesting. I feel like I move in the book both from these larger frameworks to this narrower framework, and also in some ways, from my most critical readings into what I find the most kind of um, sympathetic readings that I make of texts. And so in this chapter in particular, in chapter two, I feel like I argue in a lot of ways that all of the novels in it are capitulating to American visions of neoliberalism, far more than books um, later in in the collection, in the volume do. And so Red Sky and Morning, is fascinating to me in this way. Um, Paul Lynch took a very tiny um, moment in American history. The there's a small plaque he had found in Pennsylvania commemorating the death of a bunch of workers, Irish immigrant workers, on the um, railroad expansion west. And he found this plaque, and I think generated a story to explain what could have happened. Um, and they have largely died by cholera and been put into a mass grave um, at the end of at the end of his novel. And he tells the story of one man in particular who is on the run from, um, I think, Donegal because and he doesn't know why, but the man has decided to kill him. And we come to find out it is because he has failed to uh, doff his hats when um, somebody passed him. And so he was going to be evicted from his land and bad things ensue. Um, There's an accidental death. So I'm interested in how this very personal dynamic of landlord in famine era Ireland becomes this kind of sweeping American epic of westward expansion and how those two get tied together. And part of what Lynch is doing with that is showing the powerlessness of the character in Ireland being moved to the U S and remaining that powerless figure. Um, and I think that's to me, that's a very demoralizing, a demoralizing message, but it was fascinating to me to read it in that context, particularly there's one passage in particular where as a man who's the man who wants to kill, um, the, the refugee, the, the man in flight, comes to a work camp and all of the laborers are Chinese. And this small detail, this couple of pages, and they're highly essentialized Chinese workers. It does not feel like a particularly comfortable scene to read, but it felt to me that it was speaking also to kind of its own 21st century moment and the layering of temporalities of the 1800s of the kind of Um, moments of austerity itself and this kind of Chinese century, if we take Origi's formulation of it um, into account.
1: Yeah, I know that sounds like an absolutely fascinating novel and a great way to kind of bridge, I suppose, the 19th century in Ireland, which was obviously kind of um, often seen as just being about the famine and then into the 20th century um, as well. Um, So I suppose moving on to chapter three, uh, you discuss the anxieties around Ireland's national infrastructure and communal belonging, um, which I found fascinating. And and you talk a lot about Kevin Barry's The City of Bohane and Mike McCormick's Solar Bones. Uh, so how are the in- anxieties surrounding public infrastructures and collective enterprises formally registered in these texts?
0: So I thought this was one of my favorite hearings of books um, because they are so entirely different in some ways but also have these incredible overlaps they're both set in roughly the same part of Ireland and they are looking at like i said these larger kind of infrastructure issues the earliest scenes of city of bohane you, you see somebody you know riding in on a tram um, and so it felt to me like they were both very interested in infrastructure because so much of solar bonds is about energy sources as well and also about um, sewage and fresh water and the sorts of concerns that Bohane is this kind of, it sets in the future and is looking at what environmental destruction could wreak upon us. What's really interesting about it is that there's a giant silence about how we got to that moment um, in the text. And And I'm fascinated by that partly, um, again, with the layering of different eras, because of the various silences that have punctuated Irish um, literary production um, over the past couple of hundred years, um, where there are traumatic events that are not talked about. Um, So I was very interested in that. And also, Barry has such a distinctive tone, um, and people really love the way that his writing has such colorfulness to it and such inventiveness. And it felt to me like that formal innovation and the way that he was doing things differently was speaking to kind of a sense that the the way that things are functioning now is not necessarily working for us. Um, like I said, I'm very troubled by, and I write about, you know, how troubled I am by the gap um, and by what I I see is essentially, ultimately, a negative view of our prospects Um, versus McCormick's book, which I I found to be a much more generative kind of hopeful vision. Um, It ends on an incredibly depressing note um, in some ways, but is, I think, speaks to a generosity of human spirit and a, a sense of interconnectedness that, to me, is at the base of good infrastructure is an acknowledgement of our collectiveness and that um, unless we work together, we do not actually function as humans.
1: Yeah, I know that's a really important point. Um, And then I suppose the next thing to do is return to buildings. You you talked Mm. um, earlier in our conversation about your kind of personal connection to um, kind of property development in Ireland. Um, and you you touch on this in chat, the introductory chapter, when, which opens with the Celtic Tiger era property developer Sean Mulrian. Um, and then you take this up again most explicitly in chapter four, when you turn to, to Ireland's real estate crisis, um, and look at the ways that the housing uh, that housing is depicted in Irish fiction via the trope of Catechisis, um, which is generally speaking the misuse of language. So how does this concept work to um, as you say, quote, naturalize the economic inequalities of the post-crash era?
0: So my favorite statistic from the kind of um, era of the economic crisis is that at the moments of the crisis itself in fall of 2008, there was a um, average income in the country was 38,000 euro per year. And this is at the moment when we had politicians saying we all partied and kind of trying to say that there was a general blame and that it had been individuals borrowing that had somehow, um, you know, shopped Ireland's way into an economic crisis. And this is such a blatant misrepresentation of what had actually happened. Um, the scapegoating of public sector workers who supposedly were asking for too many benefits um, the kind of classic scapegoating of the single mom in particular, who's supposedly scrounging benefits, um, and and this kind of displacement of blame onto smaller sectors that, by the way, are obviously not the drivers of economic crisis. Um, Sean Mulrion, who you mentioned, when his um, Assets are seized, he is the person hired to help figure out what to do with them at a salary of several hundred thousand euro per year. So again, he's making, you know, six, eight, ten times what the average Irish family is, and you know, buying back all of his resources. And to me, the disconnect between the lives of most people and the rhetoric that was attached and the life of the extremely wealthy people who had to sell one of their helicopters, um, at this moment felt to me like, and catachresis is connected to like the chimera where you have, you know, the head of one animal, the body of another catachresis the mixed metaphor, the thing that doesn't quite work together. And it did feel to me like the suturing of things that don't actually belong together. Um, that's was responsible for how blame was apportioned um during this time. And that as I was looking through an awful lot of texts um that were about real estate in particular, there was it felt like a rifer space for catecresis than at the other scopes I was looking at.
1: Great. Thanks so much. And I suppose as you're speaking about kind of disjointed sewn together, things that don't belong, it, it's Robin, it? obviously of Shelley's Frankenstein. And I suppose that turns us to the last chapter, which doesn't talk about Frankenstein, but talks about kind of theories of human and non-human relationality. Um, and you focus here on, on domesticated objects, um, domesticated animals, systems of containment. And I was really taken with your kind of bringing together of, of disparate things like Paul Howard's Celtic Phoenix, uh, kind of term Celtic Phoenix, and Marie Kundo's The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, in order to highlight these feelings of, of disenfranchisement and precarity. And again, like, you know, pairing really interesting um novels together, like Ann Writes The Green Road, and Sarah Baum's Phil Simmer, Falter, Wither. Um so can you tell us a little bit more again about how these novels bring into dialogue uh through their use of of objects like cars and kind of ovine imagery? Um how do how does the non-human work in in these texts?
0: So I have to start by saying, Anne Enright has always animated inanimate things, um, and I think in this, you know, she's one of the people who kind of anticipated the weirdness of of our moments in some ways. But I think one of the things that I mean, you mentioned ovine imagery, and the more that you know, again, once I looked, I kept finding sheep um, in all sorts of places. And in particular, if you think about, um, you know, sheep code, the semiotics of sheep, um, which really should be the title of something, um, that sheep as herd animals, as not particularly articulate, as not seen as particularly bright, are an interesting kind of analog to the way that the Irish public was either censured or praised, depending on the point of view of the speaker for its passivity and willingness to submit itself to the austerity regimes um, that were being placed on it. And again, I I find myself getting so outraged. Austerity was put in place so that the public could take on the debts of private banks. Risks undertaken by private bankers were borne by people lying in hospital corridors um, when beds were not available. And I find this just to be such a a shocking thing. So you have this kind of dehumanization of, for instance, the patient in the hospital bed. Um, at this moment, in which in our own discipline, there's been so much attention to thing theory, and to um, you know, kind of the the Bennett's um, ideas about um, inanimate objects having an energy or even an agency to them. And so that juxtaposition of people who do not feel that they can act or move with objects suddenly coming to life raised a lot of questions for me about whether it's okay to even think about thing theory at just the moment that humanity and human rights are supposedly being extended to a wider swath of subjects. And these texts that we're dealing in this space of humans interacting with animals, humans being depicted as objects felt to me like they were really thinking through those questions. Yeah, thanks so much for for that. I think um,
1: that's a really good way of kind of thinking about the social justice implications of um, thing theory. Um, and you, you turn to that in chapter five as well, when you take up the kind of precarious position of asylum seekers in Ireland, and the system of direct provisions. Um, and you do that by looking at Um, Malatu Okri's uh, This Hostile Life, as well as Vikasin Nijelovic's documentary, Photography Project Asylum Archive, Um, arguing that art is figured as action that demands an audience. How might this idea of art as action directly address the injustices of direct provision policies?
0: So it's interesting. When I started writing this, um, the direct provision was supposedly winding down. And I checked back before I spoke to you. And again, it's supposedly winding down, right? So they keep saying that they are going to stop this way of warehousing humans and separating them from precisely these collective interactions that are so generative and so healthy for us. And um, so direct provision has prevailed. There was a paper at ACES just um, this last National ACES, in which someone um, was talking about Okori having come to her stories unfamiliar with the term direct provision at all. And so it feels to me like one of the important things that still needs to happen is that shedding of light. There is an ongoing issue with the way that direct provision functions in society. There's an ongoing failure to understand precisely how it works. And so art figured as action is in that way the first and foremost, the kind of providing a platform and doing that work. And so um, Nadia Kolvick's um, documentary, you know, project, which is I think also, you know, beautiful art, is very much about confronting people with the reality of the lives of people seeking asylum um, in Ireland. And so it felt to me important to talk about that dimension of what has happened in Ireland over the last decade, even in the height of austerity. Ireland is a desirable place for people to live because it's, you know, it, it has things to offer that their own their own countries are not able to, you know, in terms of safety and human rights except direct provision remains in the way. Right, exactly. And it speaks so
1: well to kind of, again, the other um, kind of ideas this book takes up about objects. You would see, you know, photographs of the food that was given to people in direct p- p- provision and things like that. Um, so lastly, just to kind of begin to wrap things up, Given this astute study of, of post-crash Irish fiction, do you have any advice for kind of early career scholars working in contemporary Irish fiction, other research topics related to your book that you'd like to see other researchers pursue?
0: Um, I love thinking about what what people will be doing. Um, there were some really great earlier career scholars and graduate students presenting. Um, some of the great stuff that I see happening is actually the recovery of earlier Irish work by women, for instance. And I think that that's a really important part of of creating a more um, clearer through line from the modernist moments in some ways. Um, The conversations that people were having about, for instance, um, Edna O'Brien's gender politics. I think um, there's a wonderful article by Claire Wills recently where she points out that To critique Edna O'Brien now is to be a bit self-congratulatory, as though we've just handled, you know, all of the gender issues and priest abuse and et cetera. Um, And that moment is not finished. Um, So I think making those three lines is very important. Um, I also there were good conversations um, at this Aces about the discourse of individual rights and whether framing as individuals, framing subjects as individuals is the best way to get us to a more equitable, just society. And so I think that the ongoing attention to ideas of the collective is super important in that. My own ideas, I i am very curious about how swift the fall from prominence of Catholicism was, um, and The, the reasons behind that, I think, um, the, you know, if, if Ireland displaced Catholicism, what did it replace it with? And some of those answers are not very appealing things, you know, like money, um, capitalism stuff. And so thinking, thinking about the dynamics and about what babies got thrown out with the bathwater, um, is kind of important. Obviously reproductive justice is important. And then to me also, um, Looking particularly because of the rise in mental health issues during the pandemic, um, it pushed me into looking also at the mental health crises that were attended to austerity. Um, So there's a number, and again, this hits kind of close to home because it's looking at County Cork. Michael Cronin mentions in an article between 2008 and 2011, 192 um, people in Cork took their own lives And over 40% of them were unemployed and over a third had worked in the construction industry. And it feels to me like there are are things to be considered there, particularly as we look at contemporary Irish fiction and the amount of self-harm that we see. And so that starts to bring Emer McBride back in, for instance.
1: Yeah, wonderful. That's a a really um, generative kind of list of of things. Um, So as this, this competition is demonstrated, this is Broken Ireland is an erudite and important book on contemporary Irish fiction, and social, cultural and economic crises. Um, I highly recommend it to those interested in Irish studies, Irish American studies, and actually literary studies more generally. So um, I encourage everyone to purchase it via the Syracuse uh, University Press website or from independent booksellers, or just the usual outlets. So. Professor McGlynn, thank you so much for this invigorating talk and for taking the time um, to, to speak with us.
0: Thank you so much. And really, thank you for the thoughtful questions.